0: Now, some of you have a sheet of paper entitled Reformation Guide. We're not going to have a reenactment of the Protestant Reformation this morning. We're talking about personal reformation, of things that need to be changed in our lives. If you don't have one of those sheets, if you'll raise your hand, we have some more. Uh, Guys in the back there, Tony and Jeffrey, and they'll be glad to give you one. And if we run out, I have some more, and it will also be on the overhead Uh, here as we study together well what about it is eating some forbidden fruit as bad as murdering someone god's word says if you have broken his law in one point you have become guilty of all so in terms of our guilt before a holy god it's the same today we have work to do sin is crouching at the door ready to pounce and we must master it Verse 7 in Genesis 4, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Today we're going to consider after our introduction, Cain the worshiper, Cain the murderer, Cain the wanderer, and Cain the builder. By way of introduction, I want to call your attention to some verses at the end of the chapter that we did not read, but they tell of some of the accomplishments of early man even while Adam still lived on the earth. Cain built a city and named it after his son Enoch. That's not the same Enoch who was a son of Seth who walked with God. It's a different guy. In verse 20, Jabal invented the tent the tent, can you imagine, enabling him to establish a nomadic lifestyle, and that facilitated the domestication and commercial production of cattle. And that word in the Hebrew would likely include camels, asses, goats, perhaps other livestock. They would have been used for beasts of burden, for milk, skins for clothing perhaps food in violation of God's instructions in Genesis 1.25. Maybe he rescinded that restriction. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us. In verse 21, Jabal's brother Jubal appears on the scene. He is an inventive genius. He has an interest in music, and he designed stringed instruments and wind instruments. And he probably did a pretty good commercial business with the sensual Cainites. If you look in verse 22, the half-brother of Jabel and Jubal, a fellow named Tubal-Cain, originated the science of metallurgy. And the Bible tells us he became a forger of implements of bronze and iron, and I'm sure that vastly improved the standard of living of ancient man, especially the Cainite branch. Data such as this, plus archaeological discoveries from all over the world, just do not fit the monkey to man paradigm, the monkey to caveman paradigm that evolutionists cherish so tenderly. All this is presented in a new book called The Genius of Ancient Man, Evolution's Nightmare. Here's a quote from Don Landis, who is the general editor. If man was made in God's image, then he was created intelligent. If intelligent, then there should be evidence of this intelligence. If man gathered at Babel and God confused man's language as a tool to scatter mankind over the earth, then commonalities and a connectedness will be found in all areas of the planet. These commonalities will be displayed in religion, construction, and purpose. Aspects of Genesis 1 through 11, including those at Babel, will be found all over the world. Towers, solstice alignments, sun worship, stargazing, sacrifice, and human-centered empire building. This is exactly what is found. All over the earth, one finds anomalies testifying to ancient man's intelligence. The evidence of similarities grows almost daily. It has not gone completely unnoticed. Very interesting book, and he gives an example. The Great Pyramid of Giza is by far the most famous of the megalithic ancient structures Last of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's held the fascination and awe of mankind for centuries. However, merely looking at it does not portray the real significance of the pyramid. Careful studies of the structure reveal characteristics of its construction that baffle archaeologists. For instance, the pyramid is precisely aligned true north within three sixtieths of a degree and the other sides also directly face the cardinal directions. The base covering 13 acres is only 7 eighths inch out of level. The steep angle of the sides unique to the pyramids of Giza is 51 degrees 51 minutes. The Great Pyramid and its two neighbors are also astronomically aligned precisely to the constellation Orion, each one representing a star in the cellar belt. How the ancient architects were able to achieve such precise measurements and alignments is yet to be determined. They also used a mortar stronger than rock to join the casing stones together, most with less than one-fiftieth of an inch between them. Add to this the problem of moving limestone blocks, over a million blocks weighing from 2.5 tons to 15 tons each, the largest weighing about 80 tons. And the Great Pyramid of Giza becomes an even greater mystery. Contrary to what one would think, later pyramids show less precision and skill. Well, that's not all. There are some other astonishing facts about that structure. Twice the height of the pyramid divided into the distance around the base equals the mathematical value of pi to the nearest one ten thousand. Only recently has man been able to calculate pi pi to that accuracy. The orientation, as we said, is within three-quarters of an inch of true north. The Great Pyramid's unique proportion solves one of man's most difficult mathematical challenges, the squaring of a circle. For you mathematicians, when the radius of a circle equals the height of the pyramid, then the circumference of that circle equals the perimeter of the pyramid's base, the squaring of a circle. The measurement used by the builders, the pyramid cubit, when divided into the base length of the Great Pyramid, is 365.242 pyramid cubits. That's precisely the number of days in one year. The world standard of measure is the meter approximately one-ten-millionth of the curved line along the Earth's surface from the North Pole to the equator. In 1850, Sir John Herschel, a leading astronomer, proposed that a more scientific alternative would be one ten millionth of the Earth's half axis, a straight line from the pole to the center of the Earth. Unknown to Herschel, this distance, he proposed, had been the measuring rod of the Great Pyramid 4,000 years before in the Pyramid Cubic. Well, another gentleman in a book, The Great Pyramid, A Miracle in Stone, says that God instructed Job to go down and help the Egyptians to build that monument to God. Now, I don't know about that, but he bases it on a passage in Isaiah. And it says, In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a Savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. Well, I don't know about that. But the point is that all over the world, we find evidence of the intelligence of ancient man for which we have no explanation other than the Bible and mainly the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So as we said last Sunday, what we're looking at is true literal history things that happened in the lives of men and women just like ourselves. Now we come to the main character in today's lesson. Cain is the firstborn of Adam and Eve. To be noted in verse 1, if you're looking in the scripture there, chapter 4 and verse 1, that Eve seems to have a sense of optimism at this point. She states she's gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Cain's name means gotten At some point, Abel, his younger brother, was born, but his name means vapor or vanity. And that might indicate that Eve is beginning to realize the truth of Romans 8.20 that says that God indeed made his creation subject to vanity. Now we come to the worshiper, Cain the worshiper. We see Cain introduced by his occupation and then immediately as a worshiper of God. Cain was a produce farmer, a tiller of the soil, and he offered some of his produce as his sacrifice to God. Abel, his brother, was a shepherd who offered a sheep. Both of these vocations were valid and acceptable to a worshiper of God. At no point that we know of have instructions been given for sacrifice that you should make a sacrifice or bring an offering. So we would suppose that either Cain and his younger brother have been instructed by their parents, or perhaps they just felt a great gratitude to God, and they wanted to make an offering to him. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the result of that offering was that the Lord had respect for Abel's offering. But he did not have respect for Cain's offering. Now, I had always understood that it was because Cain's offering didn't have the shedding of blood. There was no shedding of blood with Cain's offering, and that was the reason that he was rejected. We see that principle stated later in the book of Hebrews. There's no law at this time, but later on we see, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. But we also see something else in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Now, we know that this is a picture of Christ's perfect sacrifice that will take away the guilt of sin. But if you're back in Genesis, you will see that neither of the young men's sacrifice is mentioned specifically as being for sin. There's no mention of an altar. There's no mention of fire. Although Jewish tradition would say that fire came down from heaven and consumed Abel's sacrifice, and that's the reason we knew that it was acceptable to God. Well, that sounds dramatic, but it's not in the scripture. So at this point, we know of no sacrifice commanded by God. There are a number of instances in scripture where produce of the ground would be acceptable as a sacrifice. Exodus twenty two twenty nine, Deuteronomy eighteen four, Leviticus twenty three, seventeen, and then in Second Chronicles thirty one five. As soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine, oil and honey, and of all the produce of the field, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. Now, what could possibly be another reason for God's displeasure with Cain other than his choice of offering? And I would invite you to look in verses five and six and eight and nine. We can speculate on that one reason that he didn't have a shedding of blood with his offering But we can be certain about another reason why his offering was rejected. And it might be the same reason that our worship would be rejected on Sunday morning. So we want to be very careful with this one. We might ask a second question along with that. What is the determining factor in worship? When we gather here to worship the Lord on Sunday... What's really the determining factor in worship? Surely it is the attitude of the heart of the worshiper, along with God's prescribed method of approaching him. The attitude of the heart of the worshiper. Cain had a very bad attitude when he came to bring his sacrifice. And his responses prove it as you see in those verses. Do offerings work automatically if you give the right sacrifice? No. No way. No type of sacrifice can atone for a bad attitude on the part of the worshiper without repentance and faith. Psalm 51, you probably have this one memorized. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, Thou will not despise. Cain could have offered the Mesopotamian fat stock show grand champion bull, and it wouldn't have made any difference. God would have probably said, forget it, man, you're wasting your time and your bull. I don't need it. Because God is not looking, essentially, For the blood of bulls and goats. That's a picture of something. But what it's supposed to represent is the fact that sin is a terrible thing. It requires the death penalty. And the heart of the worshiper should be filled with repentance over his sin. Now, what if we come to church on Sunday morning with a bad attitude? And we stand up and we sing the hymns and we read the responsive reading and we put on our ministry smile and speak to all the people that are here, but we have a bad attitude in our heart. Kind of like what Cody was talking about this morning. We may as well be out at the lake watching the ducks swim around on Sunday morning. Except for the fact that if I am in church, I might hear something that would influence my bad attitude and get me moving in a right direction. When you come to worship, if you don't have the right heart attitude, it doesn't really matter what kind of praise and worship you offer. Traditional, contemporary, dancing in the aisle, shouting hallelujah, all that business is not going to make any difference if the heart of the worshiper is not right with God. What would be a right heart attitude for a true worshiper of God. Paul gives us some insight into that in Acts 20. He said, I do not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. A right heart attitude would be one that would be characterized by repentance toward God and faith. They didn't know much about Christ at this time. The seed of woman is going to be the Savior. But as the revelation was progressively given, they knew more and more about a Messiah that was coming to rescue them, to deliver them. Now we find a clue as to Abel's heart attitude. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain which he obtained but through which he obtained witness that he was righteous God testifying of his gifts and through it he being dead still speaks The Bible says in King James Abel offered the fattest of his firstlings You're supposed to give the best and the first to God. But Cain evidently went back in his refrigerator and found some old squash with brown spots on it and some wilted lettuce and some moldy grain. And that's what he gave because it didn't mention any first fruits in Cain's offering. So we know that for Cain, it looks like he was just going through a formality of worship just showing up, do the sacrifice, I want to get the blessing, oh, I need to go to church. You know, it's a kind, of a, kind of an unwritten rule in the back of our minds that if you don't go to church, God's not going to bless you. So I go, but the attitude in my heart is, I'd rather be somewhere else, doing something else. Well, we quickly regress to Cain the murderer. Cain's reaction to God's evaluation of his worship in verse 5 reveals the attitude of his heart. What is the greatest value to a worshiper of God who is a hypocrite? What's the greatest value of a worshiper who is a hypocrite? I would say earthly blessing. He wants the praise and adulation of men, just like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. And when Cain didn't get any of that, even from God, he became very, very angry. In fact, he went into a blue funk, and his countenance fell. And he was ready then to do something about it. At that point, God gave Cain a very ominous warning verse 7. If you do what is right, you'll be accepted. If you do not do what is right, sin is lying in wait at your door, ready to pounce. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now, we know that if we do what is right, it's only by God's grace. But we can do it, and we must do it, and we must master this sin that is waiting to pounce on us. Now we see the outcome of bad attitude that goes unchecked. We all have bad attitudes from time to time, but we better do something about it. Because this attitude resulted in hatred. And Cain was so jealous and put out with his brother that he killed him. Can you imagine? He killed him. He didn't have any guns. I guess he took a stick and just beat him to death. Luke chapter 11, verse 50 and 51, tell us that Abel was a prophet. In that case, maybe Cain got tired of his little brother preaching to him all the time. I don't know, but he killed him. And we see in 1 John 3, this prophesied hostility, the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now you can count on it that if you're trying to follow the Lord and obey His commands... Somebody that thinks that you're doing more than needs to be done is going to be upset with you because they're intimidated that you're trying to serve God with a clean hands and a pure heart and you feel like you need to be doing these things, but that makes them think maybe they ought to be doing these things too and that maybe you're thinking they ought to be doing what you're doing and they are not going to like it. You will see that all the time. And you know What happens? defiance grows with the attitude the bad attitude some somehow gets in our hearts and it begins to expand and pretty soon we find ourselves really not liking that person and did you ever get mad enough to kill somebody i know you've been mad enough to hit somebody but what about killing them well one good hit might kill them it begins with hatred i tend to look at this and say oh that cain that that's not me man that guy far removed from me but he's not so far removed from any of us then the lord asked cain a question where's your brother abel cain said i don't know am i my brother's keeper well he did know and we can understand from his response the attitude of his heart he was arrogant he was a liar He was self-justified. He was willing to remain unrepentant. So God said, okay, if that's the way you want it, here's what's coming. We have some punishment for you. And the punishment was he's under a curse. And his brother's blood is crying out to God from the ground. And now the ground is not going to produce for Cain like it used to. And he is going to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, the Bible tells us that somebody else's blood was crying out from the ground. Can you think of anybody? How about Naboth? Ahab and Jezebel conspired to murder him and steal his vineyard. And God said, his blood is crying out from the ground to me. And I'm guessing that the blood of 50 million aborted babies is crying out to the ground as we come to the anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision. But to somebody else's blood who's crying out, Hebrews 12, 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood brought condemnation. Christ's blood brought satisfaction to God's divine law and his righteousness imputed to us makes us just as if we had kept the law in terms of our standing with God. What an amazing thing God has done for us. So Cain reacted to his punishment and he said, this is more than I can bear. This was self-pity rather than repentance. God said, okay, I'm going to put a visible mark on you and that way you wanted to worry about some of your folks killing you. That was what he was afraid of. We don't know what that mark is. It must have been something you could see. There had been a lot of speculation. There has been a lot of speculation but the Bible doesn't say. Now Cain is a wanderer but he goes east of Eden and he becomes a builder. What did he do after his punishment had been pronounced? He built a city And named it after his son, Enoch. And then, the last verse in the chapter, What did God do for Adam and Eve to comfort them after Abel's death? God appointed for them another son whose name was Seth. And it was through Seth's line that people began to call upon the Lord. Now, here's the question for us this morning as we try to make application of this study. This warning that God gives, if you do what is right, you'll be accepted. If you do not do what is right, sin is lying in wait at your door, ready to pounce. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Does this warning still hold good for us today? I say that it does. The New Testament tells us what we are up against. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But it's worse than that. Romans chapter 7. According to this, Paul tells us that sin is already inside the door. He's on the inside. It's not like we're the pioneers and we got the door barred and the Indians are out there trying to break in the door. Sin is already on the inside. Now watch this carefully as we read it. Do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, and what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. And then down to verse 24. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about that passage, but if you just took it as it reads, it would seem that here's a man of God. He wants to do the right thing, but he's having a struggle with that. And I think Cain is a picture of anyone who knows the right thing to do, but he just can't seem to get it done. And in time, it will leave you, like Cain, restless, hopeless, hopeless, defeated and wandering from one thing to the next. Now, I know Cain is not a Christian. And we as believers have a greater power to be able to do the right thing. But sometimes this same these same characteristics seem to be what we are struggling with. I want to do this, but instead of do this. I didn't want to do this, but that's what I do. That's what Paul is saying. How does this process work out in our lives today? Through the Holy Spirit, we may be convicted of something in our lives that need to be changed. Something we're doing when you stop doing, something that we're not doing that we need to begin doing. Many times it's attitude. So when is the time we get fired up to do something about it? New Year's. New Year's revolution. And I've got all these things on my list that I want to do. I know I need to be a better person. I need to get rid of my anger and just have a better attitude. These pills I've been taking, I can't take them for the rest of my life. I need to get off of these pills. I need to eat healthier meals and lose some weight. Is that your goal? To lose 15 pounds? My goal is to gain 15 pounds. (laughs) Ever since I was 18 years old, I was so skinny my striped pajamas only had one stripe. So if any of you know any secrets, you could come to me later. And maybe we could figure out a way to swap some pounds for no pounds or something. But we all have things that we want to accomplish and things that we need to do for the new year. I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to speak more kindly to others and stop badmouthing people in my own family. Why in the world would I do that? The list goes on. But what happens? I make up my list, and I get firm resolve, and I do it for a little bit, but then I don't understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do, and what I hate, I do. And I go right back, and I do the same old thing, and I fall into what I would call the defeated Christian life. The defeated Christian life. Now you hear some people say, well, we're all sinners, we're all defeated, we may as well just face it. But how would you like to live the victorious Christian life today and in the new year? I believe that that is possible for us. It doesn't mean your life will be free from trials. You might have more trials. Because if you're trying to do right, that's going to draw the attention of the enemy. But God gives us some equipment for that. You can win the victory over circumstances and people and things and self Now, some people in the new year are going to flock to the gym to get in better condition, and that's good. But Paul reminds us that physical training is of some value, but spiritual training is good for everything, this life and the one to come. So train yourself for godliness. That's the thought I want to close with this morning. Train yourself for godliness. Physical training, that's great. Sometimes the two can be connected. If you have discipline over your body, maybe you can have discipline in some other things. And we're going to see the connection there. But let me tell you this. The training won't really come through some kind of experience. Experience is a good thing. I hope you have an enjoyable experience. I hope the ladies have a wonderful experience at the ladies' retreat. But you can go to a conference. You can go to a seminar. You can attend a quote revival service you can have some kind of experience and when you get back home driving in your driveway the devil will be crouching at the door ready to pounce on you an experience won't do it that's like a guy going to an inspirational war movie and coming out and thinking that he's ready to go into combat there are a lot of things that got to take place other than just the inspiration and we praise God for the inspiration. And I trust that you'll be inspired today. So what is keeping me from keeping my New Year's resolutions? Only the body, the mind, including the emotions, and the will. Now we talked about this back with Eve, how the devil tempts us in these areas. The woman saw the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes. There's the body. All this tree is to be desired to make one wise. There's the mind. And she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband. There is Eve exercising her will. And you remember from our study of God's clock what happened? The body became subject to lust. This strong desire out of this diseased condition of the soul. Penalty for the body was death. The mind became subject to pride. The condition that I'm thinking that I'm more capable than God or anybody else to know what's best for me in these certain areas. I don't know everything, but right here in these things, I know more than anybody else, even God. That's pride, and the penalty is darkness, not being able to see reality as it really is. And then the will obeys self, and the penalty was separation from God. Have it your way, the old Burger King syndrome. You just have it your way. You just want to go your way? Okay, I'll let you. And that was the penalty. Now the body, the mind, and the will pretty much rule in the lives of men and women. Is it not true? For instance, I know my eating got a little out of hand over the holidays, and I need to exercise more discipline in my appetite. Do you think that's going to happen by itself? Well, maybe if you can get the willpower and just grit your teeth. I know I've been watching too many movies, but I'm going to purpose to discipline myself in this new year and not waste too much time just watching what Hollywood has to offer. The emotions will jump on your will in a New York minute. Because, you see, the will is willing, but the will is weak. And the body and the mind and the emotions will rip into your will and force it into submission. It's just our experience. Now, if I could figure out some way to control my body, my mind, and my will, I'd have it made. Then I could accomplish whatever I need to do in my better moments, and then I would delight myself in the Lord, and He would give me the desires of my heart. But how can I control my body, my mind, and my will? Well, there's one way, and it's the biblical way, and it's that your spirit would rule over your body, your mind, and your will. Your spirit controlled by the Spirit of Christ. Galatians 5, verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these things are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. There's the problem. But if the Spirit is in control, the Spirit can rule. And that's what God intends, that our Spirit rules over our body, our mind, and our will under the power of the Spirit of Christ. We are subject to the Spirit of Christ. But the members of our body are subject to us through the power of our Spirit. Here's what I want for the new year. For to be carnally minded is death. I don't want that. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's what I'm looking for. I want abundant life and I want the peace of mind that I'm doing the things that I ought to be doing. And I can only do that if my spirit is in control. Now we're not talking about reading another self-help book. Every day of Friday, How to Be Happier, seven days a week. What about how to be holier seven days a week? How about this one? Ten reasons why you aren't attracting a good Christian man. Is that crazy or what? The Bible never tells anybody to attract a good Christian man. But that's, you know, Rick Phillips was saying Wednesday night, you can go to a Christian bookstore and it's a dangerous place because you're going to get all kind of strange ideas that don't come out of the Bible. No, what we're talking about is the Word of God. So if you have your Reformation Guide, let's run through it pretty quickly, and I'm going to tell you what to do with it. First thing to do is when you get home, put it in a sheet protector so that you're not going to spill egg on it in the breakfast table. And maybe run a few more copies because the devil is going to steal probably the copy that you have as soon as you get there. Now we're going to begin with the body. Because the body is probably the one that we would have the most struggle with. Here are the Scriptures, and here's the way it works. I get up in the morning, I get my sheet of Scriptures, and see a lot of you have a plan like this already, and you already have a better plan than this. Praise the Lord. This is people who don't have a plan, but you want to keep your New Year's resolutions. So I get on my knees with my paper, and I say, Lord, I want to present my body to You right now as a living sacrifice. It's my reasonable service. It's my spiritual service of worship. And I want to live for you this day. I realize that my body was bought with a price. A high price, as Cody mentioned. My body doesn't belong to me, Lord. I understand that. I want to glorify you this day in my body. And then you go to the next one. Lord, it's my earnest expectation and my hope today... That I'm not going to be ashamed because of something my body makes me do but that with all boldness Christ is going to be magnified in my body now you can decide whether you want to say whether it be by life or by death that's optional for you but then first Peter 2 Lord I know I am a stranger and pilgrim on this earth and I want to abstain from those passions of the flesh that's the old nature but they usually work themselves out in the body do they not i want to abstain from those passions that are driving my body because they're waging war against my soul and i can't live the life i want to live so lord today i'm presenting to you my body and all that lust and gluttony and covetousness that comes through my body I want you to be in control of that quickly. Next section, the mind. Lord, today I don't want to be conformed to this world. The thinking of this world has gone absolutely mad, crazy, perverted. But I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I know that's going to come through Scripture, so help me today to get into the Scripture. And I want you to change my thinking. I know it's probably going to come gradually, but I'm talking about today now, Lord. I want to be changed in the way I think about things today because I want to know what is Your good and acceptable and perfect will. Next one. Philippians 2.5 Let this mind be in me, Lord, that is also in Christ. I want to have the mind of Christ today, so give it to me. And then the next one, Lord, help me to think on these things. Whatever are true, noble, what does it say? Whatever is just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy. Lord, help me to think on these things. Now, let me give you a warning because yourself is going to start talking back to you and yourself is going to say, wait a minute, let me tell you what's true in my house. We don't have any money. I don't have a job. I don't have a car and I've got the flu and that's what's true at my house. Yeah, but that's about this much of life. God sees all of life. And God says He will supply all of your need according to His riches in glory through Christ Jesus. And God says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So don't start weighing the truth of Scripture by your experience. Stick with what God says. Lord, I want to think on these things, good things, true things. You can find them in the Scripture. Lord, I don't want to be worrying today. I want to pray. I want to offer up my supplication. I want to be a thankful person. I want to be one of those people that thanks you in all things because then your peace will guard my heart and my mind through Christ Jesus. That is what I need. The enemy is going to be throwing thoughts in my mind. I need you to guard my heart and my mind. Well, how about this one in Romans? Lord, I don't want to live according to the sinful nature. I don't want to have my mind set on what the sinful nature presents. On the television, on the internet, just a thought in my mind, whatever it be. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. And Lord, that's what I want. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. I want that life and peace. Quickly. The will. The will. Lord, today I delight to do Your will. Your law is within my heart. I want to be like Joshua. I choose this day to serve You. And I want to count myself dead to sin. See, some of these things are overlapping. Lord, I don't want sin to reign in my mortal body so I would obey its evil desires. I want to offer the parts of my body to You. I choose to do that for I don't want sin to be my master because I'm not under the indictment of the law I'm under grace. Lord, I know you came down from heaven to do the Father's will, and that's what I want to do the will of Him who sent me. And then in Philippians, Lord, you're working in me to accomplish your good pleasure, to will and to work according to your good pleasure, and I want to cooperate with you today, make my will to coincide with your will. Now, quickly. Oh, and then do all things without grumbling and complaining. Help me to do that, Lord. Now we come down to the important one, the Spirit. And I'm going to run through this pretty quickly. Lord, today I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to live by the Spirit. And I want my life to be characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control I want to have the fruit of the Spirit in my life. 1 Corinthians 13, Lord, I want to have the love of Christ. I want my love to be patient, to be kind. I don't want to envy. I don't want to boast. I don't want to be proud. I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be self-seeking. And I go right on down the list, and Lord, I don't want to act like a child today. Because children can get themselves uh, into problems. I want to be mature. And I want to remember that the greatest of all these is love. And then the Beatitudes. Lord, I recognize I'm a spiritual poverty. I come to you for bread today. Give me the living bread. Give me the living water. Lord, I mourn over my sin. You might name a few of them. Lord, I want to be meek. I don't want to have an angry spirit. I hunger and thirst after righteousness. I want to be filled this day. Lord, help me to be merciful. Help me to be pure in heart. Help me to be a peacemaker. And if I am persecuted, may I be persecuted not for stupidity's sake or for pride's sake, but for the sake of Christ. And I know I'll be blessed. And Ephesians, the armor. Lord, give me the helmet of salvation. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me every day ever since. Save me today from sin. Give me the breastplate of righteousness. Help me to know what's right. Help me to do what's right. It's going to start in my heart. Lord, give me the belt of truth. I want to know the truth. I want to stand for truth. May my feet be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace as a firm footing. I want to be an evangelist today, Lord. Give me the shield of faith so that I can extinguish these flaming arrows of the evil one. Give me the sword of the Spirit so that I can do damage against the enemy and gird me about, Lord, with all prayer. Now, do you remember last week, the enemy came to Eve, and the enemy said, Now, look at this fruit over here. And there was all the other wonderful fruit in the garden, and Eve is looking at that one thing she can't have. So, we wrap it up with Psalm 103. Probably have this one memorized. Lord, help me today. Lord, bless your holy name. Help me today not to forget all of your benefits. You heal all my diseases. You've redeemed my life from destructions. You satisfy my mouth with good things. So my youth is renewed like the eagles. You haven't dealt with me after my sins. You know my frame. You remember that I'm dust. Right on down to the end. Bless the Lord, all ye His hosts, ye ministers of His that do His pleasure. Bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And you have rehearsed all of those good things that God has done for you. Now, how long did that take? It takes about 12 minutes. Depending on how much you get into it, you might be in there 15 minutes. We comb our hair for 12 minutes in the morning. And other things too. Why? Well, I've got to go down to the gym and work out. Well, it's going to take you longer than 12 minutes to get to the gym. Record this stuff and listen to it on the way. We're not talking about vain repetition. We're not talking about some mantra that you go over every day. We're talking about the Word of God. We're talking about Christ living His life in and through individual Christians. Now, I know that we've gone over a little bit, but I want to encourage you, if you want to keep your New Year's resolutions, if you want to come out at the end of the year... Holier and happier and probably healthier and certainly more disciplined if you will put the Spirit first. And this is not some magic formula. That's going to be anything that you're doing to build yourself in the Spirit, to become mighty in the Spirit. Maybe you do an early morning Bible study. Maybe you listen to R.C. Sproul on the radio. There are many things that you can do, but the point is, we've got to do it and we've got to put that first. Now, obviously, Christ has to be in control of your life if any of this is going to count for anything. There's got to be a right attitude in my heart. I can't get up and read a bunch of verses. No, it's got to be coming from the heart. So I want to encourage you. If you're looking for something to get you out of the defeated Christian life, it's going to be, I believe, the Word of God. You may need to add some verses of your own to these. These are just ones that have been meaningful to me. And in this new year, I want to see our church grow spiritually. Because if we do, at the end of the year, we're going to be a lot better off than if we just come to church and do what we do and you know, give some money to the poor people. We want to see our lives change so that we could be instruments for change in this world. Now, if you didn't get the Reformation Guide, I've got some more. See me after the service. Let us pray. Lord, we want to thank you that you've chosen for us to be a part of this amazing kingdom that you have established. And we thank you that we can do the work to promote your kingdom if we are cleansed vessels. And Lord, we don't want to be like Cain to worship you, try to worship you with a bad attitude. We want to be those who are pure in heart, those who are seeking you according to your word, and those who are overcoming the culture that would drag us down, even in the churches, to meaninglessness and to ineffectiveness. Lord, I pray for every person here this morning. I pray that the year 2013 would be a turning point in our lives, in my life. And I pray, Lord, that we might be moving on to that higher ground. If there's someone here today, Lord, who doesn't know you, who uh, really has been just going through the religious motions, I pray that today you would become a reality in his or her heart. I pray they might be convicted of their sin and come to you to ask for forgiveness and to ask that you might take control of their spirit so that they could live the life that you've called us to live. Lord, it's an exciting opportunity, and I pray that we would be motivated, that we would be challenged, and that we would be a shining light in this community and in this world. And I ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.